Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, a show which tries to find great things to listen to each week. Coming up today, eavesdropping on real-life couples' counselling sessions in Where Shall We Begin? Then Endless Thread tells stories from the popular social news website, Reddit. Legions of Roman soldiers. Forward march! And an epic battle against a marine battalion. Hoovering is a podcast all about food and eating. I love eating as much as anything else in the world, but also it sometimes brings me conflict, shame and all sorts of other things that are rubbish. It's complicated and I think fascinating. And Love and Radio presents artfully crafted stories, like this one about a near-death experience. And I'm looking down and they, the body jumped. There were people around the gurney and the body jumped. And I thought, okay, you know what? They're electrocuting that thing. And next time you hear something good, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Where Should We Begin listens in on couples talking about their problems in a recorded therapy session. The person helping these people deal with issues like infidelity, divorce and bereavement is the Belgian psychotherapist Esther Perel, a TED Talk sensation, a best-selling writer, and she's got a great voice too. And in case you're wondering who'd open themselves up to this, apparently thousands of couples volunteered to have a free three-hour counselling session and appear on the show. And even though they're anonymous, their voices aren't disguised. This is the first episode of season three of Where Shall We Begin from Audible. It's called Young Love, and it's all about a couple in their mid-twenties trying to make a cross-border relationship work. She's in Mexico, he's in Texas. I have a question for you. Sure. When she tells you that she feels something, whatever, she says, I would love more attention or... I feel a little bit like I have to spend the whole day alone here and I'd love to talk when you come home or this is hard for me. Do you immediately feel pressure? I don't know if pressure is the right word. What would be the right word? Motivation. Yeah, like you have to do something. Like I want to do something. Like you want to do something and you have to fix it. Yeah. Right. Partly... Because this kind of competence, instrumental competence, fixing things, I think is a little bit part of the way that boys are socialized. And partly because that's been your role in the family. 
if your mother has a feeling, you need to do something about it. Yeah. And if you can't do anything about it, then you want her to understand you. Yeah. And it instantly becomes whose sacrifice or whose burdens are bigger, rather than just simply taking her in your arms and just saying, thanks for reminding me. Or, you know what, let me take a quick break and I'll get some energy for us. Or, I know it's been a tough day. Or, I know that some days it must be lonely for you. And do that's about probably all she needs. She doesn't need you to fix it. She doesn't need you to become defensive about why it is that you have nothing left to give because you work so hard, because you're making sure that you can provide for her and for your whole family and that you're 23 and that you live like you're 40. In fact, she doesn't need the whole saga. First of all, she knows it, she appreciates it, but all she needs is just someone who says, I know where you're at. And that means you have to do very little fixing. This dynamic where one person expresses a feeling and the other person experiences that as a burden upon which they need to act in order to fix it so that the feeling goes away is a very common dynamic in relationships. It is often a man who takes the role of the instrumental fixer. And when I say you have to do very little, it is not that there is not much to do, but the doing isn't about fixing. The doing is simply about making space and allowing the other person to express whatever they express. And that in itself makes the feeling, if you want, go away, rather than trying to fix it, not being able to do so, and then wanting sympathy for how hard you have tried because you are suffering with your powerlessness in making the feeling go away. It is such a common couple's dynamic that we are addressing here. And very difficult for many of us sometimes to just simply say, I hear you, I know it's tough, you had a hard day. And to think that that is actually equivalent to doing a lot. You overburden yourself with your motivation. And in the end, she doesn't get the acknowledgement that she needs or that she wants because either you can fix it right away, either you start to become critical about how is she, why she feels the way she feels because you're trying so hard and you're still not able to make the feeling go away. Yeah, that's how it feels. And that piece of you feeling that you are this person with all these people who depend on you, your children in ways... That is not a role that you want to stay in. Mm. While I'm interested in the sense of responsibility that he feels over the psychological well-being of the women in his life, I'm also interested in how this young woman seems to be much more independent when she's in Mexico without him than when she's with him. Something happens to her whereby she relinquishes her choices, her ability to move, and she puts herself into the role of needing to be cared for. Like my fantasy at this particular moment is that 
when you're in Mexico, you're much more independent than when you're here. Yeah. It's like you give up all your resources when you show up here. Yeah. And you plop yourself. And in a way, you say to him, now you do. I've done my part, which is to show up, and now you do the rest. And you are not the same person when you're here and when you're there. Yeah. No. That's true. It's, it's very true. Like, when I'm in Mexico, my phone doesn't work, for example. So sometimes we, we don't even t text or talk, and at the end of the day, when I come back home, it's like, just checking in, and, and that's fine. Um... So and I, you do things and, in Mexico yeah, so I, besides work. Yeah. And you have friends. Yeah. And you have fun. Yes. And none of that travels with you. No. So that's a problem. Yeah. Why? ¿Por qué te metes en esta situación? <laughs> I'll say. Um, a lot. It's like he loves the independent woman, but the independent woman doesn't come to Texas. Bingo. She stays in Mexico. <laughs> Bingo. That's very true. Um, that is true. I think I've, I've, it might be just an excuse, but I feel that I've, I really think like it's, like I haven't come to the acceptance yet that, okay, this is like, I'm actually coming. Mm -hmm. See, that's your version of what he does. You too stop living. Yeah. You have more than one home now. Yeah. You have two homes. And you need the life in each home with your activities, your people, your habits, your schedules, and they both become your homes. You have freedom. You can come, you can go, you can decide if you want to come less often, more often. Um, but there is a part of you that does it and says to him, I'm doing all of this for you. Therefore, you need to... And that's a story that you're choosing. What would happen if you said, I'm choosing this for me? Are you allowed to make these choices for you? Or are these only things that a woman can do for a man? Are you allowed to leave home on your own terms? Yes. For things that have nothing to do with a man is waiting for me? Yeah, definitely. You are? Yes. Okay. You know that? Yeah. You agree? You believe? You, we're on board? Which is why I love her. Okay. It's like what I was describing her when she was in school. Her is right here. You're, we're always so independent that the reason being with you makes me feel safe is because I don't feel like I have to take care of you. Like, I've never felt like you're going to be someone that, like with my parents, that just one of them doesn't work and I have to take care of you forever. I've taken this responsibility because, and like I've told you multiple times, I know it's temporary that you do want to have a career that you're not just going to be bound to me. And I love that. But she's also telling you one more thing. I am very independent, but on occasion I like a little bit of attention. Yeah. <laughs> Without you thinking that that means that you have to take care of me. Right. Because you live between the two extremes. Yeah. Yes, he does. <laughs> Say more. Um, he... No, 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 he. Oh. Um, I think... You do feel like I am I'm working, I'm independent, and... Therefore, I have no needs. Exactly. And therefore, you feel that when you come home, like, okay, cool, you know, we both work, we did our thing, now let's go to bed. And, and I still want to 
like connect with you because I I miss you. I'm, I mean, I love you. I want to be with you. And so I feel like when you come home and you're just like, you're good, you know, and, and that's it. But it's, there were things that, that... Hold on one sec. What did you hear her say just now? I heard her, I heard you say that I'm there, but I'm not there mentally. No, no, no. That's a paraphrase. You know, when we are in a rebuttal and we disagree on stuff, generally we can tolerate listening to 10 seconds <laughs> before we forget what has just been said because we're busy with our response. Yeah. So say it again and just listen. And then before you answer, just see what I'm hearing you say and repeat it. Let it land on you before you go right out with your rebuttal. The problem, I think, is that when you are with me, you are not present. All right, I'm going to give you a, a frame, a structure. X, Y, Z. When you do X in situation Y, I feel Z. Some of Young Love from season three of Where Shall We Begin, which you can find at audible.com.au. And you can also find the first two seasons of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Endless Thread uses the social news site Reddit and its massive online communities as the source for its stories. This one caught my ears. It's about a Reddit user called Proofrock451, also known as James Irwin, who lives in Iowa and works for an insurance company. He's also a big military history fan, and he became a bit of an online sensation on a discussion thread called Rome Sweet Rome. It was, it was a very normal day. I want to say it was a, was it a Wednesday? Yeah, it was a Wednesday. So, I mean, like, it's already... The most boring of days. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing happens on a Wednesday. And I was eating the most boring lunch imaginable. I was eating a lean pocket. Not even a hot pocket, you know, just like a lean pocket. Um, which is, you know, it's just like a cardboard with gravy. You know, I was just sitting there browsing Reddit on my lunch hour, and I came across this, this prompt. Um, could a battalion of U.S. Marines destroy the entire Roman Empire in the time of Augustus? James starts writing a story in response. It immediately sounds like the kind of Hollywood blockbuster that you might scratch your head at, but also might say, yes, of course this would be made by Hollywood. He says that looking back, a fair amount of his writing actually makes him cringe. It was very much a first draft. But writing it, I knew. I just knew something was going to happen with it. Like I could actually feel like this tingle in the back of my head and like my fingers were a little bit tingling. I know this is going to do something. But, I, you know, I, I put it out there and I thought, well, that was great. That was really great. That was fun. I'll get 100 upvotes now and then I'll finish my lean pocket. <laughs> James's lean pocket-fueled stroke of genius starts like this. A Marine infantry battalion, technically up to about 800 soldiers, along with vehicles, some civilian support staff, and a bunch of the usual military equipment, disappears from the face of the planet in modern times and reappears on the west bank of the Tiber River outside of ancient Rome. All of their stuff is there with them, and still works, except for internet or satellite-connected stuff, like GPS. The Marines have no idea where they are. It's chaos. 
But they start to set up a perimeter and figure things out. And pretty soon, a conflict is brewing. And with James's knowledge about military history, he has the details of how this kind of conflict might play out. He knows, for instance, about pylums. It's, it's a weighted javelin. It's, kind of, it's a spear that you would throw. Ideally, it hits somebody in the face. But if not, it lands in their shield, and then their shield is too heavy for them to lift, and then you get them with the sword. The Romans had all this down to a science. James's knowledge, along with that magic that just happens online sometimes, right post at the right time on Reddit, made his lunch break post turn into something way bigger. He didn't even finish the story, not by a long shot, but it had already caught fire. So I was at work. It was in the middle of the day. I think it was around lunchtime. And I was at the time I worked at Legal Aid. And um, I got a text from him saying, hey, I posted this thing and it's kind of blowing up. Like, oh, that's great, sweetie. <laughs> you know. But momentum only picked up as the day went on. And then by five, um, I had already been contacted by a couple of really big websites saying, if you finish the story at our site, we'll give you a pretty insane amount of money like book deal money, to finish the story. By the time I picked him up, we were carpooling at the time. I would pick him up, and then I think by that point he was getting, you know, the calls or or emails or, you know, contacts from managers in Hollywood. And, you know, it was just kind of surreal. Like, what? What are you talking about? You know, how is this even possible? I talked to you at lunch, you know. I had gotten offers from a producer in Europe, and I had also been reached out to by some folks at Madhouse Entertainment in Los Angeles. And they said, we think this could be a story. We think this could be big. Uh, you should call us. And I did. And so so that was Wednesday. And then by Friday, I had you know, I'd signed with Madhouse, so they were my manager. Um, and then on Monday, an interview came out in, in Screen Rant saying, this guy has a manager now. And once that happened, I was a real person. And somebody at Warner Brothers called my manager and said, what is this? Is this a movie? And my manager said, yeah, I think it could be something like this. And so the executive from Warner Brothers said, okay, hang on. Called back a half hour later and said, okay, we're going to do it. The fascinating thing about this is that at the time, it felt like nothing like this had ever happened, on Reddit or elsewhere. Here's a guy who writes a super unlikely tale about time-traveling Marines preparing to take on the Roman Empire, and he becomes part of his own unlikely tale about a nerd from Des Moines, Iowa, who writes a rant on his lunch break and in a matter of days becomes a Hollywood screenwriter. Not only that, they're asking him onto TV shows to talk about this debate around who would win, the Marine Battalion or the legions of Roman soldiers. I had an interview with the BBC. They put me on and they said, so we're going to have Adrian Goldsworthy on, who is probably one of the foremost Roman historians of our time. And so here I am with a man who has... And he's got this, this, the plumber, you know, Oxonian accent. Well, the Romans, they do this. And of course, they'd be ready for that. And, you know, he's, he's absolutely in command of every possible fact about the Roman Empire. And so then they come to me and they say, well, what would the Marines do? Part of the Rome Sweet Rome episode of Endless Thread. And this is another one called Doom Jelly. It's all about the excruciating pain and overpowering feelings of doom and dread you can experience if you get stung by an Irukandji jellyfish. 
That's a type of box jellyfish that comes from northern Australia. Dr. Teresa Corette is underwater in full diving gear off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. She's doing difficult research because before she can do her research, she needs to find her research subject. They are so hard to track down. They're an invisible animal in an ocean. Um, that's not even needle in a haystack. That's, you know, needle in a forest. On today's dive, she thinks she's found the needle in a forest, which is why she's made all of the effort to protect herself from her special research subject, including diving gear, which doesn't leave an inch of skin exposed. But the diving gear still has flaws. We were fully covered with gloves, um, full um, suits, uh, you know, hoods, the whole lot. Um, I had come up from a dive and was getting into the boat. And as I um, put my hands up onto the boat, actually a bit of water washed down in between my glove and my suit. And a crazy sort of freak accident, a piece of tentacle actually washed down the inside of my suit with that water. Right here is where Dr. Corette has a big uh-oh moment. She realizes something very bad has just happened. So does her research partner, Jamie Seymour. Um, and that's when um, Jamie brought the boat in and said, you know, how are you going? I said, look, I'm, I'm okay. I think I'm doing all right. I don't need to go to hospital. He said, right, well, we're going to hospital now. We have to go now. And the drive is not long, maybe 10 minutes. But by the time we had got to the hospital, I was literally on my hands and knees trying to get myself to a hospital bed. Scene two, the pilot. Thousands of miles away off the Florida Keys, Air Force Colonel Bill Estreit is doing survival training with a group of highly experienced airmen. We got to Fleming Key where the exercise was being held uh, before dawn. We were all wearing our flight suits. We were preparing all of our equipment. Right at dawn, we jumped into the water. It was perfectly calm. There was no wind. There was no clouds. It was a perfect day. And the boat left. So as I was treading water, and there were a couple other guys around me, I felt this sharp pain in my left thigh. It, it literally felt like someone took a hot screwdriver and just drove it right into my thigh. And I let out a groan and said, oh, something just nailed me. Colonel Estreit isn't the kind of guy who bails from a training exercise, even if it's tough stuff. I, well, let me put it into context. I'm six foot two, 225 pounds. I'm in decent shape. I could bench press 315 pounds. I have 374 combat missions. I've been on six deployments. So I've, I've seen and I've experienced, I've endured pain. This, this was terrible. Bill's about 100 yards from shore when this happens, so he starts swimming. When he drags himself onto the beach, he yells for a medic and rips off his flight suit. There's a bright red mark on his thigh. He says it feels like his whole leg is now on fire, but the medic doesn't really know what to do. She pours some fresh water on his leg. I was very much aware that this is bad. This is very, very bad. And within a couple of hours, my throat started to swell shut. My neck started to thicken and swell shut. 
So the nurse came over and immediately took me to the Key West emergency room. The next 48 hours for Bill will be a fever dream of hospital visits and writhing in his bunk on base. ER doctors get his neck swelling to go down, but his vitals are all over the place. Nobody can figure out what's happening to him. But one thing is clear. He's miserable. I had to actively think about breathing. Like, breathe in, breathe out, and trying to stay calm. At some point, another pilot on the base named Ed Tarquinio catches wind of what is happening to Bill. Ed is the original social network. He knows everybody, and Ed said, hey, hey, Bill, I know exactly what's wrong with you. And he said, last month, I just flew the Army Special Forces right here, and I met one of the doctors, and the doctor was talking about this venomous threat. This started hammering his guys. So Ed put me in a car, and late at night, take me to this Army Special Warfare base, hidden away in Key West. It was so surreal going in there because it's a nondescript area. wouldn't even know that it's there. You drive on to this base. I'm curled up in pain in the back of this car with my head against the window, just thinking that this, this is very bad. I've been in a lot of bad situations. This, this could be the end. Back on the coast of Australia, Teresa and her research partner, Jamie, have reached the hospital. There's actually video of what Teresa is going through. Oh, it comes in waves every now and then, I can kind of talk. And, uh, they do administer similar amounts of painkillers as you'd give someone who's in a near-fatal car crash. I had about five times the amount of morphine for my body weight. And I remember just getting locked out of my pain-killing machine. The pain's not as bad at the moment. I've got this good little clicker. (laughs) You're allowed to self-administer up to a certain point and then it locks you out because they're not allowed to give you any more. I'm actually hurting my arms. It's killing me, both my arms. It's frigging... So I remember just continually pressing this button, hoping that I could have more because I just wasn't helping. And just this feeling of not being able to sit in my own skin, like I just wanted to take my skin off. I just couldn't be in my own skin. Everything just hurt. And my face, I just want to my skin off. It's driving me nuts. Yeah, like your body is, feels like it's betraying you. You know, when am I going to be free of this? And and am I going to be free of this? You know, it's that, like I said, feeling of, of potential doom, um, which is just very, very scary. This feeling of potential doom. This is weirdly something that is echoed around the planet by people who have been hit by the same animal. Teresa felt it. Bill felt it. And actually, the guy who got Teresa to the hospital, Jamie, her research partner, he got hit too. And his feeling of impending doom was so bad, Jamie says he asked for a cure no doctor would administer. And we had a film crew there, so the whole, pretty much the whole 18 or 24 hours is on film. And I don't remember any of it. If someone had given me a gun, I'd have just gone, thank you, I'm off the planet. Jamie Seymour of James Cook University in Australia in an episode called Doom Jelly from Endless Thread, presented by Ben Brock Johnson and Avery Sievertson for WBUR. Talk 
talking while you eat, even with your mouth full, isn't a problem in hoovering. In fact, it's kind of encouraged. Welcome to Hoovering, the podcast about eating. I'm Jessica Bostecue. I love eating as much as anything else in the world, but also it sometimes brings me conflict, shame and all sorts of other things that are rubbish. It's complicated and I think fascinating. This is a conversation with an interesting soul, not just about food, but about gobbling it up, or if you will, hoovering. The show's host, Jessica Foster Cues, a British writer and comedian who some of you might have heard before in the Guilty Feminist podcast. Here she's chatting to the comedian and broadcaster Josie Long, who's recently had a baby. Mm, yum in my tongue. So you're gluten free? Yes. But have you got complicated health things with eating? Can I eat some more of this? Yes, get some more, get some more. Yeah, well, no, it's just really weird. Like, I don't know why. I just started getting very ill. It's not an insulin. Did you say once it was an ins? Is it an insulin thing? Oh, I've got that as well. Insulin oh. resistance. Oh, it's a different thing though. Yeah, but uh, do you know what? There is a thing. There is a thing that I wanted to talk about, which is how exciting being pregnant. Right. So yeah, I am. Um, I'm just taking more discs. Do it. Do it. Do you want any more? No, nope, eat it up. Oh, like when I was a kid, I sprinkled the other bits of bottles on for you. Yes, I would love it. I was yes. like. Um, when I was a kid, I got very, um, like, very overweight, right? For, like, I don't know. I mean, I think I had, like, a difficult upbringing. There's loads of stuff going on. Who even knows? Yeah. But for about... I'm going to say 15 years now, longer than that. Nearly 20 years of my life. Yeah. I would say that I participated heavily in diet culture. Yes. <laughs> Such a lovely... Woke way of putting it though, isn't it? Like I participated heavily. It's like you've got in with the bad crowd, yes. isn't it? Well, I felt like a lot of my life was stolen by considering myself to be like mm. wrong and fat, and yeah. um, considering that like if I ever lost enough weight, I would be finished and I'd be okay. But it would never, it never ever came. Yeah. And also like punishing myself and restricting what I ate and stuff like that. And about um. God, a long time now. About eight years ago? Yeah. I was in a car crash that <gasps> nearly died. And afterwards, I was like, I'm never going on a diet again. Yes! It was like the start of um, changing my life about eating. Wow, and... what an amazing thing! Yeah. Just putting it all in perspective. Yeah, and also just going, I don't want to punish myself anymore. I ju- and, and I... Did you do that to yourself with no therapy? No, I was also going to therapy. Okay. <laughs> But you know what I mean, though, because it's taken me. Oh, but it's so fascinating to have like a life, a a slap round the face life event like that to go enjoy your life. Don't spend it on these fish. Because it's, I don't know, there's an amazing podcast called Food Psych, which is an American anti diet dietitian and psychologist. And the statistics in it are... I mean, it's like a really sensible, grown-up, very serious (laughs) documentary-style podcast, but I highly recommend it if you are interested in that. The statistics on how many diets work is... Well, they just don't... Diets don't work, and they lead to... Almost inevitably will lead to disordered eating, and almost inevitably lead to mental health issues. Yeah. But I don't know anyone of our generation or our parents, and it feels like it's only getting worse, 
for future generations oh, who haven't at some point, if not for huge portions of their life, been in that cycle. Yeah. And I, I really, really... I, I, in 2009, I just sort of thought, mm-hmm. if I can just lose weight, then I'll be employable. <laughs> then I'll well, be I all those right. Because yeah. it's bleak and like... Yeah. And I kind of thought, if I can just get this out of the way, everything will be fine. And I also I've got, like, allergies, and I thought, oh, well, I'll be able to eat gluten again. I don't know what I was thinking. And I went on this diet, which was so expensive and so bad, where I basically ate protein sachets and salad and oh, nothing for a whole mate. summer. I lost the summer. Really ruined the relationship I had at the time. Really? Yeah, because I stopped going out. I was miserable. I was, like, starving. Only weird thing is, I did have incredible, like, feel very cl- clear mentally. Right. But I think it's because I wasn't really having, like, sugar, caffeine, gluten or anything. Yeah. So I think, like... Well, there those might also be an element of that. Like, when apparently when you're starving, which is what you were, hmm. your brain goes into a survival mode. Yes. Like, when you're fasting. When I did for the religious reasons thing. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that happened too. It's so that you so, can hunt something or find... It's so you can find something to eat. It's oh your body, that, that sharpness is your body using its last reserve. Oh, God. Your body's like, please, <laughs> find something. Out. Let me go into a comfier, slower mode, please. But it made me very... like it, it was basically an eating disorder that I tried to perpetuate after I'd lost the weight, couldn't keep up with. It made me incredibly anxious. It was awful. And I look now... And that, that was why I was like, oh, I want to talk about birth and stuff. Because, like, I felt like I got to a good point before I got pregnant whereby I eat what I want when I want and I enjoy it. Yeah. And when I'm hungry, I eat. And when I'm yeah. not, I don't. What an amazing... I mean, it's, it's so simple. But it's yeah. all you can ever hope for. Yeah. Yeah. And if I sometimes eat more than I need, I sort of go, oh, well, I probably wanted some comfort. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. And, like, a lot of the time, for me, it meant that I didn't... I tried not to eat very much sugar or very much booze because, like... It makes me feel like shit and yeah. get, get really like depressed and stuff. But anyway, but so I was in quite a good place before I got pregnant. Yeah. And when I got pregnant, it was the most thrilling thing in the world for once in my life to be getting visibly bigger and for people to see it's a good thing. Beautiful. And for me to feel I'm big and I don't have to be ashamed of that. And it was great. Like I'd sit on the tube with my legs really far apart, being like, Yeah, you're gonna fuck with me? And like have like men treat me better for getting bigger, it's such a weird thing because it's like, oh, no, no, in this one allowed capacity, we'll all be nice to you about it. In any other capacity, as a woman, if you're getting bigger, you're not allowed that. It's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) And so it was a really, like, weird but wonderful time. And also, again, although when I was pregnant, there was stuff I didn't want to eat, it was still really great to be, like, all better off. you just got to eat more calories. Yeah. It's more important. And, like, breastfeeding as well. Yeah. I'd look at things and be like, well, what's the point if there's only 100 calories? It's got to have 500 calories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So. I love it. Oh, there's so many things on that I want to pick up on. I, I just... It's just... Isn't it the most liberating thing? I had a real... In a swimming pool changing room, a real breakthrough moment when I was pregnant, and I put on... I don't know how much. Many, many stones when I was pregnant. Didn't care. And um, and I was changing in a changing room and completely, like, butt naked. And um, and people were all around and it was a really busy changing room. Kids, I don't know why kids sometimes make me feel self-conscious in changing room. I don't know, you know. It's because like, you remember being a kid and looking <laughs> well, at and women and, and being like, look at, Yeah, and also be like, look at your 
whatever. <laughs> also, I mean, talking of like being shamed by a kid, I have to tell you this because I don't think I've said it on the podcast yet. But um, last week I was away and uh, my son calls his penis his kinkle, uh, <laughs> and he said to my partner Mikey, "Mummy's got boobies, I've got a kinkle, and you've got a belly." <laughs> He's fat shamed his own dad. Um, <laughs> oh, that's harsh. <laughs> but also, it's like he's gone. Okay, so, I, so I've got this. That's my defining feature. Yeah. Mum, obviously, is the boobs. Dad, I mean, let's see what's here. Let's see what's going on. What's my favourite bit of you? <laughs> yeah. I think it probably did come down to that. That's very sweet, isn't I it? Anyway, I've I digressed from my own long, boring story. But I, I remember long, thinking, oh God, I love being pregnant and naked in this public place like yeah. and I've never ever thought I'd be unless because in my head I was like unless one day I'm very thin yeah whatever and I thought I'd got I've my my progress on that front has been so slow it's been virtually imperceptible but it's been there and then this huge progress when I was pregnant because I just felt this body cough was exactly the same thing like finally I could do what I want I can eat what I want and actually like my body screamed for some things when I was pregnant yeah I'd been virtually almost vegetarian before and then it, I desperately yes. wanted meat I'd like cut all my meat right down and I was really pleased I was like right yeah. I need to meet about once a week if that and I don't yeah. even feel like I want it as soon as I was pregnant I was like I'd really really like to eat meat every day yes please yes. Yes. sorry do and it a big steak and then oh, yes. then oh my god all the little restrictions things like you can't have a rare steak I had I went to but France and had one every day because they, they don't have that rule there Oh, see, that's very smart because different countries have different rules. I mean, that's rules. not why I went. No, no, but it's like time zones. <laughs> yes, you have true. to abide by the yes. rules. So if in France they're like, well, when you're breastfeeding, you can have a bottle of wine. Yes, it must be healthy because that's have their guideline. That week, I had a, I had about four really rare steaks, oh. and I had a tiny glass of red wine every Lovely. day. Oh, you! It was amazing. I bought this book called Expecting Better. Ooh. It's by this woman who I don't think I would get on with in real life because right. I think she's probably a bit of a Tory. Right. But I, not that I don't get on with Tories. I uh, I know several Tories. It's not that, but she's a little bit like, no, no, this is nonsense. Let's do this. And she's like got a whole chapter of like. If you want to have a glass of wine, don't let anyone tell you you can't have a glass of wine. Second or third trimester, you can have one every day if you'd like. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to take that little bit out of there and I'm going to enjoy it. Eating's so big and there's yeah. so many things to think about with it. Yeah. Like, I, I love it so much. It's such a wonderful part of my life. Yeah. It's such a big deal. It can be such a thing of joy. Yes. Yeah, on that note of that, what we were saying about like what do you have for dinner last night thing, and whether do you would you rather? And this was a question originally posed by a listener, but I think it's a brilliant question. Would you rather only be able to have one thing to eat a day, but it was exquisite, or you could eat whatever you want all the time, but it was very much functional and it pretty much tasted of nothing? So this one thing a Someone. day, are or you lots full? of very bland things. Are you always hungry? I don't think you are ever full. And do you have the you same thing every day? No, but it just you're allowed one oh. extraordinary tasting thing, or lots of very bland things. I suppose I'd have the extraordinary tasting thing yeah. because I want a good life. Why well, live on your knees? I know. I might change my answer to it every week. Every week. Because <laughs> if you if you had the bland stuff, yeah. you'd spend your whole life fantasizing about something better, but never get it. Yeah. Whereas if you had the good stuff, you spend your whole life dreaming of thinking full about that point in the day. But exactly, but you would at least during that point in the day, yeah, you would never feel completely satisfied. But at some point, you would get some satisfaction. 
Jessica Foster-Q, the host of Hoovering, speaking to the comedian and broadcaster Josie Long. And you can find information about where to listen to more of that and subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. Love and Radio is a great show for people who like their podcasts audio rich. No studio banter or information overload. It just gathers up great first-person stories, some pretty adult-themed, it has to be said, and puts them front and centre using cutting-edge sound design. As one happy listener puts it, the stories are great, strange, intense, the sound is a delight, and they've never tried to get me to accept a tote bag. Here's some of a recent Love and Radio story called Coming Back, and it's all about a near-death experience that Pam Reynolds had when she underwent major brain surgery in 1991. Doctors cooled her body down to less than half of its normal temperature and temporarily stopped her heart during the procedure. And she experienced the sensation of leaving her body behind on the operating table, of being bathed in this calming light, and she met a succession of dead friends and relatives she knew. The experience had a profound spiritual dimension and changed her forever. There was absolutely no fear and no sense of, I must be in heaven. They wouldn't let me go all the way into the light, first of all. So I tried to? Oh, yeah, I wanted to. But I was stopped. I was told, if... I were permitted to go all the way in there, then it would be impossible for the me that was there to be joined with the me that was back in the operating room. And there would be people who didn't like that, so no. Now, I've heard that many people are given a choice during the near-death experience whether or not to return to the body. They didn't give me any choice. I was going. And I didn't like it. Oh, I was shown my generations. I was shown a sea of people not wearing light, looking perfectly normal. I recognized my children or their faces in adulthood. Some of my elders. And there were a lot of people I didn't recognize. But the idea was... If you give this, it outlasts you because these are your voices. This, this is your voice long after you're gone from the world. This is what you leave the world. It's the only true, real thing that you leave, the ones that carry on when you're gone. And there was a whole sea of people that, because I lived, carried on. There was a point at which I understood, and I can't really say how I understood, that I would be going back. The first communication was my grandmother expressing she would not be the one to take me back. And my uncle communicated, I'll be the one. And we went back the same way I had come in. It was the entire process in reverse. It was not rapid, it was very slow. And there I was again, with him, looking down at the body. Only at this point, that thing looked like a train wreck. It looked like what it was, dead. I did not want to get in it. I didn't even want to look at it. 
And now my uncle is reasoning with me, he says, sweetheart, it's like diving into the swimming pool. Just dive in. And I said, you know what, I don't think I want to do that. And he said, well, sweetie, and here's another strange thing. He started reminding me of all my favorite things. My favorite thing to eat, my favorite smell, my, my favorite bird songs. And I'm looking down, and they, the body jumped. There were people around the gurney, and the body jumped. And I thought, okay, you know what? They're electrocuting that thing. I'm not getting my uncle pushed me. I'd heard the title track to the Eagles Hotel California album from where I was, but when I hit the body, the line was, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And the body jumped again. Now that time I was in it, I felt it. And I opened my eyes, Everyone was so solemn and so, and I thought, you know, I'm not dead yet. And this is not a funeral. And everything was just funny. Everything was funny. I just thought it was all a big joke of some kind. And your description of the operating room matched what happened? Yes. In fact, when I went back to see Dr. Spetzler a little over a year later for a checkup, I mentioned to him, I heard rock and roll in the OR. Spetzler hates rock and roll. He's a classical aficionado. I thought, okay, it's a hallucination. They're playing the title track, the Eagles album. Okay. Dr. Spetzler said, you know what? I wasn't there. The minute he left, the rest of the team, and I didn't know they played music in the operating room. You've said a few times that it was a hallucination. I thought it was at the time. I'm pretty sure now it wasn't. Tell me, tell me why do you think it, it isn't, wasn't now? Well, um, Dr. Sabom did the research and Dr. Spetzler always knew that an, it takes an active brain to have a hallucination. Even in a deep coma, you don't hallucinate. I was hooked up to an EEG machine which measures brain waves, both primitive and upper brain. There was nothing, nothing, nothing. And if I had had a hallucination, it would have registered on the EEG. And let me ask you, do you now believe that there's life after death? The death of the physical body? Personally? Yeah. I always have. But that's a faith-motivated thing. I don't, however, believe that my experience unequivocally proves life after death. What I do believe, on a clinical level, and I've spoken with a lot of physicians who think now and have thought quite some time that consciousness itself is not necessarily, while it may be recorded in the brain for us to talk about, it is not necessarily experienced in the brain, the brain alone. Yeah, brain was stopped. Mm -hmm. It was it had no blood. Mm -hmm. It's intriguing. I'm just absolutely blown away by it's, my mind can go forever. What if this? What if that? Right. right. Well, I think of it as uh, William James, he talks about, to prove that not all crows are black, you don't have to see every crow. You just have to see one white crow. And I think to prove... That's a lonely crow. 
<laughs> Poor crow. It's great for science, but, you know. <laughs> Do you feel like the white crow? Uh, yeah. Does it feel lonely? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Coming back from Love and Radio, produced by Stephen Jackson and Julia DeWitt, edited by Nick van der Kolk. You've been listening to Where Shall We Begin, Endless Thread, Hoovering and Love and Radio. And from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. See you. Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If it's helping you find new stuff to listen to, then please consider giving us a review or a rating on iTunes or the Apple Podcast, Apple Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from to help other people find us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let me know if you think you'd like to hear fewer shows, longer clips, or more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature. And if you can mention the show to a family or friend or subscribe to it at RNZ The Podcast Hour, then I'd be pathetically grateful. Thanks a lot. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.